Good morning. Welcome. Um, that never gets old for me. I don't know. I guess I just appreciate destruction, and uh, that was it. So um, welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, the, uh, this is a good day. It's already, it doesn't matter if it's raining, it's liquid sunshine, all right? That's just kind of the posture I am, because we're in the midst of a happiness series, and if you're going to be in a happiness series, uh, you can't, uh, you got to be happy. So um, thank you for being here today. My name is Chris Causey. If you're uh, kind of new to Encounter Church, one of the pastors here, and uh, we kind of, each month we tackle a different series, a different topic, and this month we've been working through um, the pursuit of more. The one more that's worth pursuing and looking for. The one more that actually does satisfy us at the deepest part of our being. Because we all want to be happy. And uh, it's woven into the very fabric of our nation, the pursuit of happiness. And yet, um, we are a nation that is medicated on anxiety drugs. We are a nation that is um, the very opposite of what is woven into our fabric. Right? Last week, if you weren't here, we looked at uh, what makes some of those unique places around the world happy. And what, what can we learn about what God has done and wired inside of us that we see playing out in other places? So if you're kind of new and you're just jumping in midstream, today's going to be a little different. Just going to give you a heads up. And I would encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the first two weeks of this series. They're super practical and just presses into this kind of basic question of how and what can actually make you happy. And in the midst of today, I want to go a little bit deeper. I want to press into kind of the heart of the matter and talk about the core of happiness and oftentimes what leads to us uh, going off that track. Uh, this week, Salvador Mundi, which is a uh, masterpiece by Leonardo da Vinci. Uh, I'm not sure if many of you heard this in the news, but this painting sold for Christie's in New York at an auction for $450 million, right? That's an expensive painting. My daughter, um, does some really neat things on a refrigerator, and I'm holding out that this is where it's headed, right? Probably some of you, too, that um, I may think she's a da Vinci, but I need the world, specifically a guy or a gal with a check, to write that, to pursue that for me. So that's my personal dream, just holding it out, that one day we get to reap that windfall of all the paper and art supplies we go through. And, uh, but Salvador Mundi, what's incredible about this painting, this is 20 um, of one of 20 small number of Leonardo da Vinci's masterpieces, but it's fairly new. It's the most recent discovered. You see, in 1958, this painting sold for $59. And in 2005, this same painting sold for $10,000. And yet this week, this painting sold for $450.3 million in an auction, the most expensive piece of art that has ever been sold. And uh, it's incredible. Now, here's, in the midst of that storyline, you kind of have this idea of like, man, the guy that was a Russian billionaire who owned it, who auctioned it, like he came out as a winner, but I can't help but feel like a pain of hurt and regret for the ones who paid $59 for it, right? I mean, think about that. Here's a guy who, $59 for that painting, and they treated it flippantly. They thought it was a copy of some Renaissance artwork, that they were the ones in the end that were the losers, and yet this painting, I think, can teach us something, that a mistaken identity or a misguided pursuit can be costly. Someone was holding a piece of art that was record-breaking and didn't even know it. And in the pursuit, this misguided information, this confusion, they completely lost what they could have had and didn't even realize at the time that they were holding something that was worth $450 million dollars. 
And I think in some ways, happiness, our pursuit of happiness, we can fall into the same trap. That we can begin in the pursuit of something that we've mislabeled, and in the end, we find out that it was also costly. We pursue and chase after something that we thought was valuable or invaluable, and that we mislabel happiness. And in fact, there are two ways specifically that we mislabel things and refer to them as happiness. And the reason this matters is that we can end up like the original owner of this painting. And in the end, when we mislabel something, we pay the price for it. We end up missing out on it. And perhaps I would imagine, because my story is, is this story, that you, maybe you've mislabeled happiness too. And that to, to, to journey through this conversation, I want to go back to um, a story that Jesus shares in the midst of a crowd and a people that Jesus is present with where he speaks to this mislabeling. It's a very interesting, it's perhaps, perhaps probably the most famous story Jesus has ever told, ever. And in the midst of this, though, I feel like there is something that you and I can pull out. So I'm going to jump straight in. It's found in Luke, which is the third biography of Jesus. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke's the third biography. It's written by Luke. That's why it's called the letter or the, the gospel of Luke. And uh, Luke is a medical doctor. He is meticulous. He's that person whose attention to detail. Maybe you're married to one of them, right? That person who crosses all the T's and dots all the I's and knows all those unique details. And they, the detail kind of person. If you tell them you want to go on a vacation, they want to know how you're getting there, how you're paying for it, where's the, you know, what's day one, day two, day three, itinerary. This is Luke. Luke is fixated and focused on details. Luke pulls out details that we don't see in any of the other New Testament letters that Luke is um, out of kind of his passion and his personal discovery. That Luke goes and interviews uh, Mary and the disciples, and out of his personal interviews, out of this journalistic pursuit of the life of Jesus, we get the book of Luke. And later in his life, he writes the book of Acts, which is the story and the history of the early church. So Luke is an a early historian, and Luke kind of captures uh, this day in Luke 15, this moment in verse 1 or 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we kind of see that before Jesus even starts his lesson for the day, there are two groups there present. And you don't have to know a lot about biblical history or first century history to kind of pick up that there is some animosity between them. There are the tax collectors and sinners. They're lumped together. Tax collectors is is a, a label given to people who in the Jewish, in the Roman government system, they would oftentimes pick locals who would go around and they would be the ones to collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government. So the Roman government may be taxing at 10%. What made tax collectors kind of hated was that the Roman government left the tax collectors freedom in how much they actually picked. As long as they got the 10%, they could get whatever they wanted. So tax collectors oftentimes would show up and say, hey, it's tax time. I need my 20% taxes. They had the freedom to persecute. They had the freedom to prosecute if you didn't pay the 20%, even though the Roman cut was only 10 So they were a people who were robbing from their own people, and the Jewish people at this day hated them. To be called a tax collector was a derogatory statement. Sinners is this catch-all because a tax collector is a sinner. They're people who've kind of rebelled against their own people. They've turned their backs on God. They've turned their backs on their family. They're, they're this worthless group. 
And then in the same crowd is a group of people called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They're the PhD. They're the religious students. They're the ones who have it all together. They're the ones of prominent. They're the ones of position. They're the ones of power. And they're in the same crowd together. And this is kind of difficult for us that we don't necessarily walk into a crowd where tax collectors and Pharisees are in the same kind of group unless you're at some weird I don't know, toga-themed party where you're supposed to dress like first-century people. Like, this is just not something that you would normally encounter. So let me kind of break it down in our world. This, is, this goes beyond Red Sox and Yankees coming together. This goes beyond Democrats and Republicans coming together. This goes beyond Tom Brady and Roger Goodell having dinner together, okay? Like, this is a heightened elevation of hatred and frustration. And yet they're there that day to hear Jesus because there's something they see in Jesus they don't see in themselves. And Jesus does um, what you probably, the only thing you can do when you have those kind of people sitting in front of you. You tell a story and you try to diffuse. And so Jesus launches into a series of three stories. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to focus in on the third, which is the point, it's the story he was driving to that he's making this kind of ever-increasing revelation and point and lesson to these two groups. And so the story begins in verse 11. So if you have the Encounter Church app, you'll find it's already loaded for you. Uh, we're going to jump into verse 11. I'm going to hop around. You'll also notice it on the screen behind me. And if you just want to listen to my sweet, sulky voice, then you just follow along as I read it, okay? So there is a place and a space we can all engage with. So Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the young son got together all he had, set off, at a set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. I mean, this is how Jesus starts the story, which instantly everybody in the room leans in. Well, this is an interesting story. Two sons, this is, the first, this is just the first son. This is where he is. This is what he is doing. You have to realize that this is first century, so people were feeling emotions. Storytelling was the movie of its day. People listened to storytellers the way we watch movie releases. So this is an oral culture, and they are totally engaged. When Jesus starts telling this story, all the emotion of this moment would have hit them. First, to kind of give you a little bit of context, when the son says to the dad, dad, give me my inheritance, the son is essentially saying, hey, dad, you're going to die. It's only a matter of time. I don't know when that time's going to happen. I'm not sure exactly when. It's, but it's just a matter of when. It's not an if. And when you die, I get a portion of what you will leave behind. So let's just quit playing the charade. Let's pretend like you're dead, and you give me everything that I'm going to get anyway. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's probably not the conversation you want to have with your child. He's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. In fact, you're worth more to me dead than you are alive, so let's just go ahead and skip to that point and let me get on with life. But even though geographically, spatially, the son was with the father, relationally, the father and the son were not. There was a disconnect. And it's a pretty brutal disconnect. And the father does something that in, in Jewish culture... Uh, you go back to the, there are passages and there are rabbis, teachers of the law who would have been listening in that group who were like, oh, I know that passage from Leviticus that says that dad can pick up a rock and smack his son upside his head. Like, I know that passage. 
But what does the father do? The father does something that offends one of the groups of those people. The father says, okay. And he cashes out the investment. And he gives his son a portion of his 401k. And he says, okay, son. And the son, the very son, I mean, so I have a five-year-old little girl. So I think when I read this story, it's so emotionally vivid to me. The moments that are my favorite moments as a parent are the moments where I get to pick her up from school or I'm picking her up from a house in the, or she's in the morning time when she's just gotten out of bed and the door flies open and she runs to me. It's my favorite moment. There, there is not an experience in life that can compare to the moment when my little child runs to me. And I imagine for some of you who are parents, you feel that too. And here's a father who's watching his child do the very opposite. He's running away from him. And there's nothing he can do because his son is finally doing geographically what he has already done relationally, which is he's distant. And the son wants to start all over, and he goes far away, and we don't know where he goes, but Jesus chooses the word distant. And in the language that Jesus is speaking at that day, what we get out of that is this isn't he's going to Providence, Rhode Island. This isn't even L.A. This is transatlantic kind of travel. I want to start all over. I don't want to be around in your atmosphere at all. And we find out that what does he do when he gets there? It says that he squandered his wealth and wild living. This is the mark of what his son is doing. And wild living, the squandered his wealth and wild living has a lot of different connotations to it. But a lot of it, it's not just that he's, um, I don't know, a toddler or a four-year-old with $100 bills and a dollar spot at Target. It's not just that they're buying everything. There's also this moral component that this idea that there's some, some ethical decisions that what he's consuming and drinking and doing isn't exactly honoring the father who gave him the money in the first place. So there's a little bit of both. He's wasteful, but he's also wasting his life. And this is what is consuming his world. But Here's the, the part I think that's really interesting. This first group of people, this son, he captures, I think, one of the dangers, one of the mislabels of happiness that we pursue, and it's pleasure. That if we're not careful, sometimes we will mislabel pleasure with happiness, and we will pursue pleasure thinking we're pursue, pursuing happiness. And pleasure works, well, it's just I need a little bit more. And as long as I get a little bit of that more inside of me, then I'll be a little bit more happy, and this doesn't work. Right? Most of us, the biggest regrets you and I have in our lives are moments where we mislabeled happiness and we pursued pleasure thinking it would satisfy, and it didn't. So we smoke it, we drank it, we slept with it, we did it, we said it, we, we went there. And in the end, that moment that we thought would pursue our happiness is a moment that we look back on our lives as our biggest regret because we mislabeled. We said, that will make me happy, and all it was was pleasure. And this is what this son's life looks like. This is where he is. He has mislabeled his pursuit of happiness. He's confused happiness with pleasure, and he finds himself, as the story continues, in a place after he had spent everything. There was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in, fee, be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out as a citizen of that country. Just think about this. I mean, I, this story, I mean, I could keep you here all day, and I promise you I won't. But this story, 
This is the first time this kid has ever been in want. This is the first time his father is no longer taking care of him. Even the money he had to squander came from his dad. This is the first time he's ever, ever been on his own and by himself. And he, he's so hungry, he finds a citizen of that country. And what does that citizen do? It, the citizen sends him out to feed pigs. Now, for many of you, maybe you like barbecue, and in your mind, that's not that bad. You're just closer to a sandwich that's about to happen, right? But for a Jewish boy and girl growing up, one of the distinctives of your food habits was that you knew early on pigs are unclean. It's just not that they may be loaded with fat. It's that they are, to eat it is a sin. It's to, it's, it violates who you are. And here is a here is this young man doing something that at the very core of who he was was offensive. In fact, a way a, a, in the ancient world, um, they, they didn't have uh, the words that we use um, that get bleeped out on television, but they had their own curses. And one of the curses that was common in this day and age, if you really wanted to stick it to somebody, if you wanted to kind of jab low and kind of drop the, the nuclear kind of F-bomb equivalent, what you would say is, well, may your son or your daughter feed pigs. I mean, people are pulling off robes and throwing headbands down, and they're getting ready to scrap. You tell somebody, may your child feel, like, I mean, feed pigs, and it's, it's fighting words, right? I mean, this is scrappiness happens. And this is where he is. He's feeding pigs. And Jason said this wasn't a feeding trough, but this is a feeding trough. And this is his life. He's feeding pigs every single day. And it says that he gets so hungry. He's in such a place of, like, famine and drought. Not just externally around him, but internally too, that he looks at what the pigs are eating and he wishes he could eat it too. This, he is in such a place of desperation that he would eat out of this, but we find out in that same verse, but that no one even cared to feed him. He would have swapped places with the pig to have the slop that they ate, but he couldn't because he was not even worth that much in the eyes of his master. This young man had pursued pleasure and what he found in the pursuit of pleasure that he had mislabeled as happiness is he found a prison. I don't know about you, but if you've ever chased after pleasure thinking it was happiness, that what you find in the end, you give it enough time and it eventually becomes prison. Because whatever you did, you just got to keep ratcheting it up keep turning up the dial, and it keeps getting emptier and emptier. And you find yourself in the same place metaphorically as this kid did, where you realize that pleasure doesn't satisfy and it doesn't fill, and it leaves you with a bunch of holes and a lot of hunger. But then there's this other story. There's this older son. There's two characters. It says, verse 25, Meanwhile, the other son was in the field. When he came near the house... He heard music and dancing, so he called to one of the servants and asked him what was, what was going on. He says, your brother has come. He replied, your father has killed the fattened calf because he's come back safe and sound. So I'm kind of jumping ahead in the story because I want you to see these two different people. The older brother became excited and ran into the house. It says the other brother became angry and refused to go in. See, what had marked the pursuit of the first son? life 
was pleasure. This isn't this son. This son is buttoned up. He's got it together. He's got the degrees. He's got the training from Farming Incorporated University. He's done the online courses. He's got the accreditation. He's got the suit. He's got the tie. He's got the knowledge of the family business. He has always kept it together. He runs a tight ship and a tight schedule. Everything in his life is always so perfectly, pristinely, perfectly clear and planned. He is good. He's done the exact opposite. For him, he mislabeled happiness in the pursuit of perfection. Just need the right degree, the right salary, the right house, the right car, the right clothes. Get my life looking together, the right perfectly manicured Instagram feed. If I get perfection, then I'll be happy. And that's what's guided his life. And so he's offended that the young brother would even come back because the brother is the very definition of imperfect. He squandered his money where the older brother, he's got savings. He's got Roth IRAs. He's got 401ks. He's got, he's making up numbers. He's got real estate investment. He's got it going on. He's got the spreadsheets where he's figured out which sheep with which sheep produces the better offspring. He's perfected his life. And yet what he finds is he's on the outside looking in because he's angry at someone who's come home. He is in a different type of prison, but it's still a prison. He mislabeled happiness in the pursuit of perfection, and many of us can do the same thing. We fall into the trap and say, if I just had that degree, if I just had that title, if I just had that many kids, or if my kids just acted that way and brought those those kind of grades home or perform that well on the field, right? If I had that size house, if I had that size salary. But I would wager that many of us live in a bigger home than we lived growing up. We probably have bigger salaries than we made growing up. And yet, does it make you happier? Has it made you happy? You cross some threshold and all of a sudden you realize the pursuit of perfection is not the pursuit of happiness either. And these two groups gathered, these two guys embody the crowd that's formed there that day. The tax collectors and sinners, they drank the Kool-Aid. They had bought into the lie that more money, more pleasure, more fun will make me more happy. And it hadn't. And the Pharisees and the teachers of law had bought into the pursuit of perfection, thinking that was happy. And the prominence and the position and the kind of everyone knows who you are, that hadn't made you happy either. And so they're both there standing in front of Jesus, and they are capturing the essence of that great U2 song where they still have not found what they're looking for. They know there's something more but they haven't found what they're looking for. Pleasure didn't satisfy. Perfection did not satisfy. And they saw something in Jesus they didn't have in themselves. They had used pleasure. They had used perfection to try to cover the holes inside their souls. And what they saw when they looked at Jesus, even if they didn't like Jesus, is they saw someone whose soul was whole. The holes in their souls had constantly allowed those pleasures and those pursuits of perfection to drip straight through and to leave them empty the next day or the day after. But yet, Jesus was different. 
Right? They had made the same mistakes you and I had made where I'm thinking, oh, our relationship's falling apart. Let's move in together. That'll make it better. Right? Or, oh, our marriage is really struggling. I have the best idea. I know what will fix it. Let's have a kid. Or I know what my problem is. I just don't like my job. Let me get a better job with a better salary, and then I'll be okay. Or that one glass turns into three glasses that turn into a full bottle. That we are running the same treadmill that they ran to, and this is why they're in front of him. It's because they recognize we have holes in our souls, but Jesus, you are whole. What in the world? And I love it. The people who weren't even like Jesus, like Jesus, they were drawn to him. They saw something in him. They were in prison, but he was free. And Jesus knows this. He knows where they are. This is why he's telling this story. The story is a setup. It's to set them up to step into a better life. And so how does he bring it home? What is the common denominator in the story? The common denominator is the father's response. So what you see is this, the young son laying in the feeding trough, wishing he could eat the food the pigs eat, has this moment of insight where he says, you know what? My father's hired servants, they, they're fed more than I am. Maybe I should just go back. And so the son begins to rehearse in his head, right? In verse 21, you see the son kind of starting to even say these words that he'd already rehearsed. He's like, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm not even worthy to be your son. Just make me a servant. This is his rehearsed moment because he recognizes he's been in rebellion and he is experiencing this turnaround, this significant shift in life. And so as he gets up and he goes, verse 20, so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Now, if you're in that crowd and you're listening that day, this is offensive. Your boy, like your blood kind of pressure starts to rise because how dare God, how dare this story, how dare this father with this worthless son? Fathers back then, to, so, okay, we, pants are a great modern invention, right? Back in the day, it was more robes, you know, like modern day what we'd call skirts or long skirts. And so for a father to run, a father was kind of the height of like respect. This is a respect-oriented culture. So a father did not run because to run meant he had to hike up his little thing. And, you know, underwear is also a new invention, okay? And so like you don't run if you're a father. You walk everywhere and you take small steps and everyone around you appreciates it. But what does he do? He pulls up that thing straight up to the knees because the only way you run is them things above the knees, right? Okay? And so he pulls it, and he's running. Why? Because he sees his son. And he grabs hold of his son, and he starts to kiss him. Jesus uses the word. This is not a formal kiss. This is the way when my little girl is running from me, and she's like, Daddy, can't, you can't catch me. And I chase her down, and I grab her, and I go, this is that kind of kiss, the passionate, I love you, you are special to me kind of kisses. And this is what he does for this dirty, worthless son in their mind. They're like, "How this father is a disgrace. This is scandalous. This is not how the story goes. And yet, this is how the story goes. This is how the father responds to the son. With profound love and profound grace. He says, take off that dirty servant's robe and put on the finest one. Put on shoes because servants back then, 
didn't wear shoes, but sons did. He says, look, put a ring on his finger. He's, he's special to me. And kill a fattened calf and eat it. Meat was, was a rare kind of meal addition. So this is a big deal. You would just kind of have a fattened calf. So when the moment was good and things happen, it's that champagne that's kept in the back. That, well, whenever, whenever that big moment happens, we're ready. This is what this calf is for. And the father says, let's have a feast and celebrate. And the capture, the heart of the excitement the father has, he speaks in this grand metaphorical kind of way. He says, for this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. And he's lost, but now he's found. He wasn't really dead. But to the father, relationally, it was. And he wasn't really lost. But to the father, relationally, he was. And he says, this is a moment of celebration. My dead son has now come back. He's alive. And my lost son has now returned. And he's been found. And he throws a party. To celebrate the reconnection. And the son, with the rest of his story, he's sitting out there angry because he's pursued perfection, thinking that's happiness, and he's offended that this imperfect, wasteful, squandering, immoral son of his father has now returned. And his father, what does he do with him? You jump into verse 28, it says that his father went out and pleaded with him to the older son. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Interesting words. And never disobeyed your orders. Father, I have done everything you've asked me to do. I have been the perfect son. But when this son of yours, notice not my brother, but this son of yours. Right? You know about that when your kid does something and spouse gets home and you're like, that child of yours. Right? Not my child. It's obviously, that came from your bloodline. That was your genetics playing out today. But that son of yours, that son of yours, it's like, I can't even believe it. He comes home, and what do you do? He squandered everything that you gave him. And what do you do? You throw a party for him. And the father responds, my son, it's like, you're my son too. That's incredible, profound words of love and affection. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. It's like, quit talking like this is me holding things back from you to experience good. Everything I have is already yours. He says, but we had to celebrate and be glad because his, this brother of yours, Notice the relational reconnection there. Was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he was found. That this scandalous story that Jesus tells that these people, both people who have been looking and searching and longing for something significant in life, they are standing in front of Jesus and he says, you have mislabeled happiness. One, some of you have pursued pleasure. Some of you have pursued perfection. And both of you have experienced how it does not fill your soul. Both of you have tasted that it has left you empty. But what satisfies, what fills, what makes whole again is the Father's love. 
that to this group who's plagued with shame and guilt and doubts and fears of what if my father knows what I have done, to this group, he says, the father says, there is nothing you can do that makes me love you less. There is nothing you can do that I can't forgive you and move you through. And to the group that's perfect, he says, look, there's nothing you can do that will make me love you more. There's nothing. Another degree, a bigger salary, a greater title, a larger house, a nicer car, a bigger crowd. None of that will make me love you more. And we intuitively get this. If you're a parent or if you're a child, you've, you've heard those words. I say these words to my daughter regularly when she says, Daddy, I don't like you because she's given pre-rumbles of a teenager. I'm like, it's okay if you don't like me. You know what? Your daddy will always love you. There is nowhere you can run to that I will not chase you. There is nothing you can do that I will not forgive you. There's nothing you can say that would make me walk away. There's nowhere, no thing, no one that would ever change or shape or pull my love away from you. Do you understand, Ellen? Oh, Daddy, I already know that. I'm like, that's good. You just keep that in Because, girl, one day I'll demonstrate it. And if we as imperfect parents get that, Jesus is saying over this crowd, then why don't we get that with the perfect father too? Because when you recognize you're loved, when you're recognized that you're wanted, that you have a father who runs to you, even when you run away, that when you recognize that there is a God who says everyone matters to him, even if he doesn't matter to them, it changes you. All of a sudden, it fills you. Those holes get plugged, as Augustine said, that we are all created with a God-shaped vacuum and that we find our satisfaction in Him. And that we stop pursuing pleasure and perfection, thinking they're happiness. And that we find our wholeness in Him. That it does something. It changes you. I have to, to travel a decent amount, and I fly, and so one of the things that's happened as a consequence of that is I have airline status now. So I get to have one of those little higher numbers stamped on my name, and I get to walk on the plane a little bit earlier. And I love when I travel with my family because, especially Ella, because they get to kind of get covered by that status, right? That what I have done, the, the flights that I've missed, the airports I have sprinted through, sweating, the baggage struggles that I have had and that I have lost, they get the benefits of all that stamped over their name. And I love them as a family. We fly together, and they call our little name, and, you know, and you kind of get to walk up, and hundreds of people are sitting there. This is probably not a good thing, but my daughter, she's like, I got status. <laughs> there's the commoner line, and then there's the I'm special line. She walks on the I'm special line. She struts down, bald man, give her my ticket. Thank you. And then walks on that plane. She sits down, and no one else is there, and she gets her iPad out and got her snacks and blankets covered up, shoes are off, and people are just filling the plane. But what's interesting is even though I'm a little concerned that she may be a future princess or dictator in the making, that what's incredible about it is that she intuitively understands that I I've got my father's status. 
and it changes the way she acts. That I am, in the eyes of this airlines, I am a somebody, and I am special, and I do have a special place, and that that means I get the benefits, all the benefits that my dad has given to me because I'm in his family. Now, this is what Jesus is speaking over this crowd, that when you allow the wave of that love to hit you, then you recognize that you have that. That's the posture and position in which you get to live your life from. That's what you get to walk out from a place of strength. And that I would say to you today that I recognize for some of us, we have so many different people at so many different places, but I imagine there are some of us who are stuck in the prison of the pursuit of perfection or pleasure, and it is empty. And you have run that rat race of thinking more and more and more is finally going to fill the holes inside, and it doesn't. And maybe today you just, maybe you're not willing to step across any kind of faith choice or decision or push in deeper, but for you today just to say, I'm, I, just, I just need to acknowledge on the inside that I have mislabeled happiness and I have fallen into the prison and into the trap of thinking that more pleasure or more perfection is going to fulfill me, and it will never fulfill me. It will leave me empty every time. And just coming to terms with that can be freeing. For others of you, maybe it's the realization that maybe what Jesus said over that crowd is what I need to do, that there needs to be in my life, if I'm going to move from a place of strength and wholeness and quit trying to cover with holes, that I would accept and and move into what Jesus lays out for everyone, a meaningful relationship with God. This is what a meaningful relationship looks like. And and I've used the baseball diagram before because I think that's a really helpful handle of like, how does it, what does it even mean to have a meaningful relationship with God? What does it even mean to have an insight and an awareness of those kind of relationships? And the way that we move through that first base is that decision of saying, I recognize, like we take our cue from this young man. What does he do? He's standing, staring at the feeding trough, watching pigs eat with his stomach grumbling and realizing I have rebelled against my father. I've sinned. I've made choices and decisions that go against the very good that he desires for my life and that I've gone beyond the bounds and limits that he laid out and I am completely over here and I've rebelled. And this is what he realizes. He realizes I have rebelled against my father on earth and my father in heaven. And then he does something. He, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back home and I'm just going to confess this. And that very moment of getting out of that spot and space and moving back towards home is what in the New Testament is called repentance. But to keep with the Italian illustration, what I love about it is that the, the, the Italians had an art term and um, plaster that was called repensioso. It was this idea that if you painted something it was wrong, that you would repent and you would scrape away the plaster before it stuck. And that scraping away allowed you to start over. And this is what Jesus tells his people to to repent, turn around, start over. And in returning home, what happens is the son is restored. He came home a slave and he became a son again. That that is the first base. The second base is what you're going to get to watch today. It's people who've made that choice, made that decision, who say, I I want it to be public. I want to actually come and let people know that I've made this decision and, and, and the Christian church, we call this act baptism. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian, right? Me jumping in this water, well, it doesn't make me a Christian no more than putting a wedding band on my finger made me married. 
This is just a symbol. It's a significant symbol, but my wife in the preschool area didn't just be like, I'm a single lady, right, because I pulled this thing off. She, she's still married to me because this represents something internally, a significant decision. And that's what baptism, that's what we're going to get to watch in a few minutes. You're going to watch people who are saying to you and to the families who gathered here today that this is a decision internally that I've made that represents something externally and what baptism represents. And then the third base in that journey is just growing in your faith. And I recognize that we have people through all the process in here and that for some of you, maybe today you want to take a significant step. For some of you, you just want to explore and you want to sit back and read and dialogue and have conversations in starting point in the app. Um, I've labeled something first base, second base, and third base to make it really clear. If maybe today you're like, I want to grow in that meaningful relationship. I want to learn more. First base, second base, or third base is already loaded in starting point, and you can click on that, and we have a place and a space and a step for you. But here's what I would throw out. Maybe some of you are like that young man, and you recognize that I've made those choices. I've pursued, and today I want it to be different. So we're going to do something different. We've got people who are going to be planning on being baptized today, and we think while the water's warm, that maybe some of you have made that same choice too. That you want to say, Jesus, I, I, I'm that young man or I'm that older son and that I've run after other things, mislabeled it as happiness and what I desperately need is you. And then I would, I would offer it to you that we have thought through everything you might need down to the underwear and you can keep it. We don't need it back. This is our gift to you. But if today, this is a day that you're like, you know what, I, I want to step in and I want to say to the world, this is a decision I've made, or maybe today this is a decision you want to make, and we want to walk, walk with you and celebrate that we've got these bags sitting in the back, all women, men, different sizes, and we've thought through everything for you. And that, here's what I know, is that that painting that I showed, showed you at the beginning, it's called... Salvatore Monday, because when Leonardo da Vinci painted it, what he called Salvatore Monday means savior of the world. That's a painting of Jesus. That it was his action, his love, his deed. That this painting was worth $450 million because of the, the hands that touched it and formed it. That it was the master behind this piece that made this priceless. And that you, represented in this painting, you are his masterpiece. And that you are infinite in worth and value. And that that God has said over you that you are loved. There is nothing more you can do to make him love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you less. And that's the God we want to celebrate. And that's the truth that we want to walk in. And for those who have stepped across the line and for those who have not, this is a day where we get to reflect on that. Because I know this, that what makes you happy is no thing. But I do know that what can ultimately satisfy you is someone. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are good. And that you, even in the midst of, of 
hope and life, that even in the midst of those crowds of people who had sought pleasure and perfection, you, you showed up and provided another way, that you labeled happiness and wholeness. And I pray that uh, as a group that we would, um, for those who know you, that those who've stepped across the line, that they would walk with the confidence that comes from knowing that they've been covered with the status of being loved and forgiven. That we would, as a people, walk in the freedom that that brings of being loved, of being wanted, of being known. Thank you for grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for uh, the, the Savior of the world. And for those, God, who are maybe not in a place or not even sure what they believe about you, Jesus, I pray that in the areas of our life where we've mislabeled happiness, that you would help us to see where those labels have been misapplied. And that we would even today, during the midst of this song, tear them off quit believing the lie that they will ultimately satisfy. And I thank you. Thank you for what we get to celebrate. Thank you for the song that we will sing. And it's in your incredible name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Thanks for letting me kind of set the stage a little bit today. I went a little bit longer than I normally do because I wanted you to kind of have the fullness of why are we dipping people in a feeding trough? Okay. And it's because we believe that the lowest point of your life can become the single greatest point of your life. That when you hit rock bottom, that there is a God who scoops you up and can take you higher than what you've ever imagined you could be. That, that even that as a people, that we believe that places of death, relationships that are done, dreams that have died, feeding troughs that we find ourselves at do not have to define us. And that's this beautiful symbolism. And so we're going to end with a song today that's going to it's going to be a little bit of a longer song because in, woven in through this song will be baptism. And it's a song called Resurrecting. And it points to this God who, who steps in and that as a people, we celebrate Friday, uh, Good Friday, and the idea that Jesus was crucified on the cross. But Chris, Christianity is nothing without Sunday. Because if Jesus had not come back from the dead, there would be no hope. There would, this would be a waste of our time. We could all be prepping for football. Okay. Honestly, like there would be something else we could have done today. But because there is hope, because a grave is empty in Jerusalem today, because tourists walk by and snap pictures of a grave that used to have a dead man who came back to life again, because of that thing, because of that moment, we have hope and we believe that no matter where we are in our lives, no matter where we are financially, no matter where we are relationally, no matter where we are spiritually, that there can be better days, there can be brighter days, there can be fuller days that our holes can be filled and we can be made whole. And that our marriages can be better. Our communities can be more loving. That our conversations can take on a different tone. That we believe all those things happen because we serve a God of the resurrection. And so we're going to celebrate a little bit. We're going to sing a little bit. We're going to declare a little bit. For those who perhaps want to take us up on the offer that we've thought through everything for you, that when I pray and the band starts to sing, we all stand. Just You can just head back to this back corner. I'll be there, and there's a little room where we have your little bag ready for you. And um, I'll come back up in a few minutes and kind of walk through. And um, But this is a, a church that really believes that life change can happen no matter where you find yourself. 
and that um, as a church in the next five weeks, you're going to see us celebrate this God who is generous, who gave us his son, who gave us life, who gave us hope. You're going to see us celebrate that in the way that we've given away tens of thousands of dollars this year to all kinds of organizations around the world. And the reason we're able to do that is that you're going to notice in this moment we're passing a basket. And it's because people who come to this church who love, who call Encounter Church Home, they're generous people. They're part of this generosity movement. And so if you're, you're new here, I just wanted you to be aware of why you see people passing around a basket. It's because you're sitting in the midst of a people who really truly believe that no matter even at the bottom of the feeding trough, there is hope that even no matter where you are today in this world, without the basic necessities, that there is a God who loves you and we get to be part of that stream. So I want to invite you to stand. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. I want to pray. And then for those who maybe want to take that step or have questions, I'm in the back and I would love to have a conversation with you. And uh, thank you for being at Encounter Church today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for life and hope, and thank you for the promise that you bring of a Father's love. And I pray that you would um, remind us, even as we sing, that you're the God of the resurrecting. And I thank you for the celebration of what uh, you have done and what you're doing. And it's in your name I pray.